Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Todd A., Ryan S., Jared A., and Nick W. A returning guest on the show today, Matt Geiger is here with us. Matt is the managing partner of MJG Capital, a natural resource-focused hedge fund based in San Francisco, California, United States. You can learn more about MJG Capital via their website. That's M j g capital.com mr geiger how are things with you things are all right andrew i appreciate you having me back on the uh, the program here and um after after a few weeks of uh you know working furiously on the on the fund's uh, latest uh, investor update i've now emerged from my writer's dungeon um so so life is good and uh as you mentioned um any any uh, listeners can go to the mjg website if they'd like to uh, read the, the most recent um update it's, it's posted under the investor letter tabs excellent matt i appreciate it thanks for coming back you know why don't we kick that off here i mean i want to roll through you know a number of commodities here with you but uh why don't we start out with maybe just giving the audience a quick overview of your latest letter to investors well, the MJG fund, um, for, for your listeners, is based out of the San Francisco area. Um, we have a full natural resource mandate and a 10-year lockup for, for all investors. It's very long-term focused, uh, natural resource oriented. Um, we're, we're long only, and we'll, we'll hold a, a concentrated position of between 15 to 25 names at, at any given time. Um, and right now, we're at, we're at 22 after a recent sale. Um, publicly traded positions, as well as one private investment in a, a handful of, uh, of warrants that are in the money and uh, a handful of warrants that, that are not in the money. Um, so, so that's kind of our our jam. Um, in terms of you know the investment psychology, uh, it's very much people focused, and so I, I try to look at this on very much from a bottom up basis. Um, when, I, when I'm looking at a company, I try as much as possible to actually put the target commodity out of sight, out of mind, and focus on who's involved. Are they properly incentivized? You know, have they put up their own money into this deal? You know, are they up five or ten x on their investment already? Or are you able to get in on the same level? And then look at the asset. You know, is this a high quality asset? Could this, in theory, be built at the current metal price or even you know b below metal uh, current metal prices? Uh, you know, do they have enough money to get through the next milestones? And you know, is there value, uh, et cetera? Then you look at the company structure, upcoming milestones, price to value metrics, uh, the jurisdictional uh, fit within your your current portfolio. I'd say I'm generally pretty lenient for jurisdictional risk as long as we don't have too many eggs in, in any given basket. And only then do I really look at the the, the commodity of, of focus. Um, I find that a lot of investors in this space, uh, you know, find themselves chasing uh, the the flavor of the week commodity. And and some folks are good at it, but but generally that's that's not a recipe for success. Um, and it's it's really the kind of temptation for newcomers into the space in particular, of which we've seen a lot of over the past six, six to 12 months, uh, you know, generalists coming in, retail investors coming in, ESG uh, focused investors coming into certain uh, niches of, of the mining space. So just just a word of, of, of caution. I think this is the better approach to go as as an investor in this space. I guess one point of note and, uh, you know, uh, thing that I emphasized uh, in the letter is that we're we're in a double uh, we have a double digit cash position now uh, for the first time in in a long time uh, the fund uh, generally uh, runs pretty fully deployed um, at at any given time uh, however because of you know we're we're in a weird paradox here for for resource investors on on the one hand from a mining perspective over the coming five ten years the setup couldn't look better. Um, on, on a whole handful of metrics, whether you're looking at commodity prices specifically, or natural resource equities generally, or natural resource equities X energy, so really just, just mining, we are at or near 100-year lows when compared to the general stock market, when, co when compared to the S&P 500. So I, I'm a big believer in reversion to the mean. It never happens as, as quickly as, as you anticipate. 
Uh, it's never a smooth ride, um, but I think this has to reconcile at some point over over the coming years here. You know, that said, the concern is what what we're seeing in in the general markets and across most other asset classes. And you know, there's a plethora of anecdotal uh, evidence out there that's that's concerning. You know, whether it's the return of retail investors and and mass, you know, through through platforms like Robinhood or the Reddit fueled, you know, uh, meme stocks uh, that that have that have proliferated uh, since the coronavirus panic, or cryptocurrency and, and SPAC crazes, um, the, the spread between value and, and growth. It just it just goes on and on. So you know, I'm in this weird position where I, I feel you know very excited about where where we sit here, looking out four or five, you know, ten years. But but in the immediate term, I think investors have to. Uh, confront at least the possibility that there's going to be a broad market pullback um, because things things do seem to be a little bit in, in fairy tale land uh, at at the moment here. And even if you know this 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 large pullback occurs, it can be at no fault of 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 the the resource industry at all, um, which you know in the scheme of things is actually relatively well behaved at the moment in terms of capital discipline and keeping GNA low, not making too stupid of acquisitions. But, but you know, even if it's at no fault of their own, when we have this next big risk off event, you know, us as mining focused or resource focused investors are going to get hit right on the chin. And we, we have to recognize that and, and know that there at some point here is going to be 30 or 40 percent drawdowns in, in short order, like we saw back uh, in, in spring of, of 2020. So I think it's, it's psychologically important for, for, for folks to position themselves for that, especially investors that may be listening to this, this program that haven't been in the mining space for all too long, don't understand the volatility and the, and the cyclicality that's inherent in this space. Matt, I suspect that you're in the camp of everything gets sold in this initial event, and maybe at some point in the future we see some type of a event where it's 2001, 2002 type scenario, you know, the broad market air comes out, but natural resources hold strong and start moving up. Maybe that doesn't happen. I'm not sure. It's, it's really hard to tell, but I, I do think with just the over leveraging that's in the broad market, I do think that that completely spills over and, you know, uh, natural resources across the board get whacked. And as you know, we've seen things like silver and gold sentiment errors come out. And just recently, since you know the run-up, the equity prices of uranium since November, we've seen the air come out of that to the tune of at least 30%. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. I am in the camp that uh, initially that we get, all get whacked. And in our opportunities letter, we're sitting around 34% cash. And I feel like sometimes mm. if this is like COVID 2020, I feel like this is not enough. This is not enough cash. So it's, it is concerning and we've been a little bit penalized for having too much cash and then also people not necessarily happy with having that kind of cash in their portfolio, whether or not they're following what we're saying or not, I don't know, but uh, it is a bit of a concern. And I think overall though, I think we're in a pretty good position. I think that's right. Um, I mean, you touched on a, on a few points there. Uh, I will I will say, yes, I, I think that assumption as an investor has to be that everything's going to be sold off and sold off in mass. And if we're surprised, then then great. Um, but but history tells us that that's that's most uh, almost always always the case. Uh, it's also probably worth noting that the especially on the equity side of things, some of these metals that have that have seen a lot of speculative attention in in recent months and. Uranium, of course, there's been a pullback over the past four weeks, but I put uranium into the category. Uh, I put I put tin into that category. Um, you know, those equities could be could be hit a lot harder because there there is speculative premium built into them. You know, compared to to, to gold, um, which has uh, kind of fallen out of favor here over the past eight or nine months, or something like zinc, which is about as contrarian as, as you can as you can get for for a metal. You know, it, it's possible that that downside in this in this pullback scenario will be a little bit less. In these out of favor metals, but yes, as as an investor, assume assume the worst. You can hope for the best, but I, I think I think you'll be rewarded for for holding on to that that cash position. But it it can be psychologically difficult because there's nothing stopping this market from continuing to march higher for another 18 months. And I think anybody holding decently, you know, outsized cash positions need needs to understand that that's uh that's within the realm of possibility and and not make the worst possible mistake, which is to stick with it, you know, for 12 months, say, throw in the towel. And of course, right when you do that and, and go to fully deploy, that's right when the top of the market will be. So if you're going to, if you're going the cash route, you, you got to stick with it. So 
I'm prepared for us to be, you know, we're, we're in the mid-teens currently, and I'm, I'm prepared for us to be sitting in the region of 20% cash, you know, for the foreseeable future here. And when it's ready to deploy and we're ready to go back to 5% cash, we'll know it. There's not a specific number that I'm looking for, but, but we'll know it. You'll have that pit in your stomach and you know wake up on multiple consecutive mornings and see half of your portfolio down eight or ten percent and there will be another time like that i'm not i'm not sure when that will be but there will be another time and and then you know the, the few of us that that do have a, a cash dry powder set to the side that'll give us the conviction to, to hang on to our uh, existing positions and then and then also the opportunity to, to take advantage of uh, of some some bargain prices so um, we'll, we'll see how it plays out, but you know, I'm, I'm comfortable to be wrong for quite some time on this on this cash front. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing here is, is specifically in the gold sector, you know, some of these are are getting very, very cheap. You almost want to deploy more capital in some of that right now, given you know the, the copper's a little bit in correction mode here, and uh, you know some of these other places are probably still in that mode. But uh, some of the gold equities here, Matt, uh, I've just been surprised uh, how much air has come out. And gold, the underlying metal is actually holding up pretty well. You know, you said something else and so you have an advantage over, you know, normal investor is that you have a fund and that you might have a potential waiting list that may be bigger and smaller at different times throughout the year. But should you need to raise capital, you could let in some of those investors in the door. So for a guy like yourself, if you guys get a little bit low on cash and you have people knocking, you can potentially expand that cash base. I'm sure you've done that in the past. That's right. That That is an advantage. I mean, so so within an open-ended limited partnership, um, which is the way MJG is structured, there's really three different ways to to you know build your cash position. Uh, one would be, of course, to, to trim or, or liquidate uh, holdings. Um, in order or order to build build that cash and and we've we've been doing we've been doing a fair amount of that over the past six months with increasing frequency over the past 90 90 days um you know the, the second way is to have a takeout or two which uh, which i'm hopeful for um, i think there there is a possibility that that one of our uh, one of our holdings probably adriatic and i mentioned this in, in the in the letters is probably top of the list in terms of, of most likely to, to move within the portfolio, but we'll, we'll see, um, you know, that that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down to, but I trust uh, Paul Cronin uh, tremendously there to make the right decision on, on uh, behalf of shareholders. Um, but, you know, a, a buyout, a cash buyout or a, or a buyout in script and then, and then liquidating that is, is a second way for us to, to raise our cash position. And then the third is, you know, is an open-ended partnership where we're taking on new investors at the first of each of each month. So, so there are scenarios, you know, especially if inflows are, are strong um, where we don't have to sell any names and just by virtue of the new investors coming in, we can, we can boost our, our cash position from low levels, you know, closer to, closer to my goal of uh, 20% here in the, you know, next, next three to six months. Yeah. On the buyout front, hopefully there'll be some activity on that. And it's no secret over here that, that we expect some type of a purchase of Lumina Gold in our portfolio and mm -hmm. that gets done. And that should easily be a, a nice, uh, not something substantial, but certainly a nice return and a low risk return that there will be some type of a takeout at a premium to current mm -hmm. prices. I will say quickly, quickly, Andrew. I mean, this has been psychologically difficult. This is not, this is not easy, especially in a, you know, a space like the natural resource space. I mean, you, there's four to five thousand different opportunities for us to, for us to sort through. And another thing that's, you know, contingent upon or you know, necessary for you to properly raise cash is to not be deployed into, into all too many new names. So, you know, in the first half of this year, we only made two new investments, uh, both, both via private placement. And that's kind of the that's the lowest lowest volume that we've we've had in terms of initiating new names, really since the the fund's in, inception. And uh, I imagine it's going to be going at the slower pace, where we'll we'll take one one shot per quarter at most, um, you know, until until that next big sell off event. And then there there could be an opportunity to to add four or five names that have been on the watch list in in short order, um, you know, in when there's blood in the streets. But we're we're not we're not nearly there yet. So uh, talk about for a moment, uh, strategic resources was in the letter. Just maybe give a broad uh, overview on why you think that that was a good ad at this level. Our members probably know a little bit about this company given our past Lumina uh, group event, but maybe just talk about why now for strategic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so strategic's an interesting one. And um, it's, uh, you know, as, as as we mentioned, there's a 12 page write-up, I believe, in the investor letter. So folks, folks can check that out. Um, 
and I, I say right up front, Strategic's unique within the MJG portfolio because I, I would classify this as a tried and true optionality play. You know, th this is this is a bet on on higher vanadium prices, and there's there's no really beating around the bush on that. Um, this is not a style of uh, of investing that that we do very much at all within the MJG Capital Fund. Uh, there's really only one other holding that I would say falls into into that bucket um, at at the moment, um, aside from strategic. So, kind of putting that that point aside for a second, I do think it checks all the rest of the boxes that that we we look for for new investments, and that starts right at top with 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 the people. Um, this is a Lumina Group uh, backed company. Um, Lumina uh, Group is was founded by Ross Beatty in the early 2000s, and they've generated over a billion and a half uh, of, of of exits for for shareholders here over the past two decades. Uh, prolifically uh, successful. And also another important point about this group is it doesn't happen often, but in scenarios where they don't knock it out of the park or have that you know A plus outcome that they were hoping for, they stick with their shareholders, and that's that's very rare amongst the junior space. You'll, you'll often see management teams you know jumping from from one vehicle to another at the, the first sign of trouble. So I have tremendous uh, respect for the group. Whether it's Mr. Beatty himself, whether it's Marshall Koval, uh, whether it's Scott Hicks, who's the the CEO uh, at Strategic. Uh, Lyle Bratton, Martin Martin Rip, they they have a team there that they've assembled that covers all aspects of of mining. Uh, there's the accounting, uh, the, the capital market side of things. Um, uh, Leo Hathaway, of course, doing the the ge geology. Um, uh, Marshall Koval, very experienced uh, mining engineer. So so they really check all the boxes, all the boxes there. L Lumina Group currently has three vehicles. And uh, you know, as you mentioned, you had them on uh, just a few months ago, I believe, and, and did an in-depth interview. Um, and you touched on all three of those vehicles. The the flagship, of course, is Lumina Gold. You know, a 250 million or so uh, odd company with a with a development stage, Congrejos asset in Ecuador. You know, it's been publicly known since really the beginning of 2020. I think Ross Beatty announced it at the the Vancouver uh, Resource Conference um, that Lumina Gold is soon soon to be sold. And it didn't happen in 2020. I think that's that's probably understandable with the the Ecuadorian presidential elections coming up in the spring of 2021. Uh, but now that that's occurred, we have the new president in place. He's a, he's right right uh, wing, you know, moderate right wing, uh, pro business. Uh, I think the the time is nigh um, for for Lumina to to monetize their asset now that there's you know three or four years of somewhat political certainty on on the federal level level at least in in Ecuador. Um, and then they have a prospect generator with with an Ecuador Luminex, and then Strategic, who's kind of the uh, the ugly stepchild at, at the moment, not not very followed uh, clearly based on the company's valuation um, of of 11 million Canadian and uh, and and the liquidity we see there. Um, but once Lumen is out the door, you know Strategic will be down to two vehicles, and there's the the Ecuadorian prospect generator, and and then there's Strategic, and I think. Uh, more eyeballs are going to come onto this story, both from the Lumina Gold perspective and also as as vanadium, you know, heats up. And it, and it may take years, but uh, this is this is a metal that's that's characterized by by price spikes, you know, once or once or twice uh, twice a decade. And taking a step back before we go down the the vanadium route, the company owns a couple assets in Finland. Um, one of them's a brownfield asset uh, called Mustavara. Um, which between the mid 70s and mid 80s, a period of uh, uh, nine or 10 years there, produced 10% uh, of the world's vanadium supply. So, so it was a substantial producer on, on a global stage. And uh, you know, lots, of, lots of money has gone into, into the ground there. Uh, there's still a historic resource. Uh, the mine site's actually permitted uh, through mining and concentration on site. So, so that's that's an important advantage that it has over you know the vast majority of uh, of, of other development projects out there, both both vanadium and and otherwise. And they just they just came out with a PEA at Mustavara earlier this this spring. Um, I will say you know the numbers numbers didn't jump off the page, and uh, the market's reaction to the PEA said said as much. But I think most investors that have looked at this closely knew that this was, you know, the quote unquote optionality play where this is this is not a project that that works at spot prices, um, you know, uh, fair vanadium prices or, or pig iron. Uh, it's get, actually getting closer because the, the prices of both of those materials are up a good 30 percent 
um, just just in the past uh, six months. So we're so we're headed in the right direction, but still, you're you're betting on moves in those two those two specific metals. You know, should should that occur? And again, vanadium in particular, the prices of both vanadium pentoxide and and ferrovanadium would have to more than triple to see the the levels that last seen in, in 2018. This is a project that that on paper will be spitting. You know, it already spits out a 400 million or so odd euro NPV, and uh, at at higher prices, uh, it's 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 massive. And you know, the the company is getting getting traded at, you know, uh, or trading at roughly 0.01x uh, and NPV multiple at at the moment. So um, again, this this is a pretty asymmetric an asymmetric bet if if metal prices work in investors' favors. But I think the other important aspect is you've got the team, you're able to get in at the same valuation as this team, and that's a, that's an extremely important point. Um, you know, Ross Beattie's the largest individual shareholder here, and you know it's 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 pretty well known that he he first got involved in a 23 cent placement, which came with no warrant sweetener. And uh, when I pressed send on the uh, on the investor letter earlier this week, you know that that's where the strategic uh, share price was sitting, right at 23 cents. So you're you're literally able to get in to a 10 million dollar vehicle alongside Ross Beattie at the exact same cost basis. Um, that's not a bad position to be in. And uh, you know it's also important to note that you know the share price fell, I think, to an absolute low of 18 cents during the the depths of uh, you know the the, the coronavirus uh, driven sell off last year. Um, and we're not sitting, you know, too far from those 52-week low levels either. So uh, there, there's very little speculative premium, if anything, bet into, uh, uh, baked into the company at current. And I think it's a good, a good opportunity to align yourself with some very smart people um, who, who, mind you, have executed the optionality business model itself successfully through Lumina Copper. That's another important point. This is not, you know, something that they're trying for the first time. And they created hundreds of millions of dollars versus worth of value doing this very same thing. You know, going out into a, a bad market, you know, buying large, low-grade copper assets for pennies on the dollar that had already seen historical drilling and development expenditures, and then giving them a little bit of time and and monetizing them when uh, when when the market swung in their favor. So. Um, I think I think there's a lot to like here, and but again, it's unique in the fact that it's op optionality play. That's not generally our our mo with MJG, and it's also our smallest um, holding in terms of of market cap. So I think that's that's another another important note here. Yeah, Matt, this is great, and this one certainly, while we don't own it officially uh, as a recommendation, I'm very comfortable with these prices, and this setup is is incredibly good, and the market cap of the company is is just bottom of the barrel here. Sure, can it go a little bit lower during some liquidity events? Absolutely, but those should be met with buying. It's something that's been on our radar, obviously, because we track the group and we've had some prior uh, events with them, and, and also they've been on the podcast. But certainly, it's one that people should have on their radar, at, or, or should actually just be buying at this point. So let's move on here for a moment. Uh, let's go ahead and, and kind of touch on a few other items. You mentioned prospect generators uh, in your reference back to Luminex. Come back to that for a sec on prospect generators, because. It's not something that we've been terribly attracted to. Um, I would say in our portfolio, it's not uh, hugely important that we have them, although Luminex is a portfolio company. Those prospect generators, Matt, have kind of fallen out of bed, essentially. I mean, it's just not something that's been extremely liked by investors. Doesn't matter what commodity, it just doesn't seem like it's getting a lot of traction. And what do you think? Is it uh, is the model dead, or is there just some metrics we should look for? I mean, obviously, at some point they get cheap enough to where it makes sense. Well, I think I think you're right. I mean, there's there's no question that that prospect generators have been out of favor for at least a decade, and uh, you you could make an argument that that maybe even a, a couple decades here. Um, because even during the you know 2002 to you know 2007 or 2011, depending on how you want to define it, you know China-driven commodity supercycle, that that was not a discovery-driven market. A lot of the assets that were advanced and, and put into production over that period were already discovered, you know, before the 2000s and already had seen you know significant expenditures. And it, it was more you know uh, these assets uh, starting to work at at higher metal prices. It's as simple as that. And so we have had this, you know, decade to two decade long period where the major producers have really replenished their reserves. 
either by A, advancing these later stage development projects that were already discovered well before the turn of the century, uh, and B, you know, probably more importantly, you know, continually lowering cutoff grades, um, you know, which was justified by by lower uh, by increasing metal prices. Um, but it's a little bit of a of a shortcut, and uh, you eventually push push that too far. And I think it's clear across the board. I mean, a metal like copper is an, is an obvious example. But for for a lot of these metals, if the major producers are going to be able to keep pace with uh, projected demand growth there's going to need to be significant discoveries and these discoveries are going to need to be uh, advanced into into production pretty pretty quickly here and so i do think we're going to actually see the pendulum swing back and i'm uh, i'm i'm more more optimistic on on pgs than i've than i've been in some time um it, it is to be fair a business model that's that's always appealed to me um i think you know it's the it's been it's built to minimize dilution which you know, is is arguably the number one enemy of of investors uh, in this in this space. I guess the the other competition for that would be unethical people, and there's there's a lot of them in this industry. Uh, but 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 that aside, it it appeals to me that it's designed to limit uh, dilution while still giving you the upside through the expiration game. And yeah, maybe if there's a major discovery, you'll 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 only own twenty percent of it, or you'll only own a healthy royalty at the end of end of the day versus a hundred percent. But you get a bunch of shots on target. And uh, it's, it's just an in, intention, uh, intelligent way to go about mineral exploration. But I, I do concede your, your point completely. It, it's been out of favor and investors that have been in this, this neck of the woods generally have not been rewarded um, in recent years. That said, you know, as, as I mentioned with these major producers, like they've, they've over the past 10 years, past 20 years, they slashed their exploration budgets. They laid off their teams. You know, they have they have very little infrastructure in, in place uh, for, for a lot of these companies to go out and do and do proper exploration. So so my my hunch here is that we are going to see um, a lot more uh, activity and deal volume between these these larger parties and the and the prospect generators. And of course, yes, some junior explorers as, as well. Um, but, you know, whether it's strategic alliances, you know, ex exploring for a certain metal, you know, over over a large uh, regional uh, focus. Um, whether it's you know a joint venture or an earn-in deal for for a specific project, uh, whether it's a sale from the prospect generator to a bigger party and a retention of of a royalty, I think we're going to see this this uh, this deal volume pick up in in uh, over the coming years. And and as you mentioned, these 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 companies are out of style. And in in a lot of cases, there are some interesting names out there that are trading you know close to their their working capital position, you know, a lot of a lot of coverage of, of market cap. You know, one one holding we wrote about in the uh, MJG investor letter, Golden Valley Mines, is literally trading at a 25% discount uh, to its cash and marketable securities at at the moment. And so, you know, there are advantages of of you know peeking around these uh, these out of favor niches of the market. And if the pendulum does swing back, I think there's there's uh, excitement ahead. You know, when I do look at these companies, and you, you mentioned metrics, um, I think this this could be interesting to your to your listeners. Aside from all the, the the good stuff that I mentioned earlier that we look at, you know, the people are they focused on their core competency? Are they uh, properly incentivized? Are you getting in at a similar level to them? Asset quality is it interesting? Is there scale? Company structure, yada yada. You know, there there are three metrics that are unique to prospect generators that I'd recommend that that folks look at. You know, if they're lining up the the PGs, you know, one through 40, and are kind of evaluating what's what's the cream of the crop. Um, the, the first one that I look at is the company's uh, working capital position. So we'll say uh, cash uh, plus marketable securities uh, minus any any liabilities um, when compared to their to their market cap, and and that's a measure of of downside risk. Of course, companies can, uh, in Golden Valley is an example, uh, get to the point where their market cap does drop below. Uh, their quote-unquote liquidation value, uh, but from my perspective, that's a good rule of thumb uh, to get a sense of whether a company has 30% downside or 80% downside if shit really hits the fan. Um, so that that's the first and the measure of downside risk. Then I'll look at the company's runway to the next financing, which is basically their working capital position uh, divided by their monthly burn, all-in monthly burn. And that'll give you a sense of how long you can expect the company to go without incurring any more share dilution. And, and for a lot of these companies, I mean, Golden Valley included, 
you're, you may never see a financing. Uh, there's there's no reason to with with the, the healthy cash and working capital position. As long as they stay uh, adhere to the business model, you as a shareholder can be can be confident that the share count is going to stay very very constant. But anyhow, looking at this this runway will give you a sense of of the of the dilution risk. And as I mentioned, that's extremely important variable here to, uh, as an investor in this space. And then the the third metric um, that I look at. Um, is the company's expected uh, synthetic revenue relative to their enterprise value. And synthetic revenue, fancy name, uh, coined by Rick Rule originally, I believe, but it's, it's a simple concept. It's, it's, it's simply how much money is going to be put into the ground by said prospect generators partners over the next uh, 12 months. And looking at that relative to the company's enterprise value or the implied value of, of the company gives you a sense of uh, value. And how, how much bang for your your buck are you, are you getting? So you know, for investors that that are intrigued by this this niche of the market and are you know maybe narrowed their their list down to twelve or fifteen you know prospect generators with highly qualified, well incentivized management teams, these are a few different metrics you can you can look at to kind of uh, pick and choose maybe the the you know three or four that you actually want to add to your portfolio. So I, I found these these quite helpful over the years. Matt, that's excellent. That's good information. Hopefully, the audience took some notes there. I like specifically on the the discount to cash. Um, I think that one's an interesting one to point out. I think people should be careful with it. It applies very well to the example you provided, Golden Valley, but then it also is is a very good indicator also of companies that are just completely wasteful. And if they're trading at significant discounts to their cash value, it's because investors expect that they will blow that money. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. It's it's a potential opportunity when you see a company oh, trading below its liquidation value, but it's not automatically yeah. an opportunity. When you see that, the Correct. next question is: there must be something wrong here. What is it? And if you yes. if you spend 12 hours talking to shareholders, talking to management, and you're still scratching your head, then maybe there is just an opportunity. More often than than not, though, there is a problem. But going back to the Golden Valley Mines example, I know CEO Glenn Mullen very well. Uh, he's clearly not done an amazing job promoting the company, even though he does put effort into that. But he has a he has a track record of discovery. He has you know he's been part of two major discoveries in Quebec, where Golden Valley's focused, uh, Nunavik Nickel originally, and then and then the Canadian Malartic it's, it's itself. He staked a, a fair amount of that original land package. Um, he, you know he's president of PDAC for for a couple of years. He's clearly respected within the industry, and the company's you know priced as if he's a crook, and that's just that's simply not the case. So. Sometimes you you will be able to find diamonds at the rock, but I think the uh, yeah. a, pr- a proper amount of skepticism is warranted. Absolutely. Well, Matt, I just for the sake of time here, I know that uh, you've got a tight schedule, but um, let's skip on gold because I think we've beat that to death enough already, where we think that is. But why don't I start out here, and let's try to rapidly cut through these. But I want to start out with you just giving your quick view on the current uranium environment. Okay, well, I do have a tendency to, to pontificate, so I'll, I'll do my best to, to be concise. In short, and I, I think we're, we're actually a little bit different in this. I think you're, you're more optimistic on uranium prices, but I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you speak for, speak for yourself. Um, but, you know, my base case assumption is that over these next three, four, five years, we, we will see 50 to $60 uranium. Um, but I think at, at this point, it's, it's greedy to, to expect that it, that it overshoots. I, I hope it overshoots. I think it's quite possible that it'll overshoot. But but you know, as as a as a you know prudent speculator, I don't I don't think you you want to be betting on $150 uranium. And, and you know, maybe I'll be eating my hat here in a couple of years. That that remains to be seen. But there's just there's so many uh, pounds that have already been discovered that are sitting undeveloped, you know, across the basin, across the United States, across Kazakhstan. You know, I, I I think there is a flood of supply that would be incentivized at these at these prices. You know, moving on to the actual equities, we we touched on earlier that there's been you know pretty healthy pullback here over the past five, six, seven weeks. I think it's fair to say that the the Taishan, uh nuclear plant leak that was reported um, originally mid mid June, I think it was June 14th, June 15th. That is the temporary peak, I believe, for for uranium equities. I, I'm not saying it should be, but you got to a point where there was so much excitement um, amongst amongst the uh, amongst the uranium or the junior complex. Uh, so many folks that had never invested in mining before, haven't in years, 
plowing into the space, retail investors, traders, ESG focused focused investors. And you know, to be fair, the the spot price um, nor contracting volumes from 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 what I could tell from afar, you know, we're picking up in in a degree to justify some of these price moves. I mean, a lot of the even the high quality juniors out there were being valued at you know one x NPV multiples, assuming sixty dollar uranium. So there's a lot of 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 move in the uranium price already already priced in. Um, you know, th- that said, there there have been some positive developments here, even even during this this you know temporary pullback. Which to, to be to be clear, if I if I had to guess, and I really try to uh, try to stay out of the uh, the prediction business as much as I can, but it would make sense for this you know pullback consolidation period correction, however you want to describe it, probably last into the into the November timeframe. Um, that's that's generally when you'll see uh, seasonally uranium equities and and the price of uranium it's, itself pick up. Um, it's that seems to happen almost almost every year. Um, so so that's that, that's probably how it will will play out. You know that said, you know with with the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, you know Sprott's household name within the North American you know uh, mining space. We use them um, as as our kind of specialist broker for private placements. I have a lot of respect for that group. Uh, they're taking over UPC, and uh, yeah, this is gonna this is gonna become a one of uh, a major physical trust. And Sprott, with its trust structure, has some key advantages over UPC uh, beyond the brand name. You know, most significantly is the fact that they'll be able to do at the market purchases. So we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of uranium sucked up by this this uh, by this group over the coming over the coming months and years. I think Darren Millmeister from Extract Capital in his, his recent investor letter was right when he said, you know, this is equivalent to, you know, a large utility or two joining joining the market. I, I think that will be the, the ultimate effect. So that's a positive. Um, and then, you know, as many of your listeners will will know, because Adaprom uh, came out in, in the past few weeks, you know, and extended their 20% uh, production cut through another year, which I think caught, caught so, uh, some market observers by by surprise. So they're they're not going to go up to to nameplate um, until early 2024 at the, at the very earliest, um, and then of course there was the uh, the, the the major fires uh, around uh, Cigar Lake, which which got a lot of uh, press and, and social media uh, coverage. Uh, it, it didn't end up uh, damaging the 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 operation, um, so it was a, it was a narrow miss. But I think to a lot of folks that 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 went and uh, you know further emphasized the fragility. Of, of the uranium um, s- supply chain, you know, is, is something that folks will keep in mind here um, um, going forward. Uh, in terms of the MJG fund, I mean, we really only have one major uranium position uh, at at the moment at around six percent of the of the overall portfolio. Um, that's that's Global Atomic. It's it's been a very large winner for us. Um, first buying shares in the forty cent range. Um, you know, participated in a sixty cent uh, placement. Um, in size uh, last year, and um, you know, I think, look, there's a lot of geopolitical risk there. We have, we have no other exposure to, to Niger, which I think is a, is an important point uh, to, to to emphasize. Um, but you know, their advantage of of course is being fully permitted, and there, there's not many uh, high quality development assets out there that look good on paper at reasonable uranium prices that already have that that permit in hand. So so that's a name that we'll we'll stick with. Um, management's done done a great job there. We we have taken profits. Uh, to, to be fair, I mean it was it was close to a. 15% position at, at, at one point in the past few months. And, uh, you know, I think there is room for another uranium name to be added to the portfolio kind of in this, you know, fall period as we as we head into November, maybe September, October. I, I don't want to get too cute um, here, you know, whether it's owning the physical trust itself or whether it's looking at Kazataprom or, you know, sticking to the four or five high quality later stage development assets. That may or may not be permitted, um, or if it's not permitted, you know, it's, would probably be next gen's uh, arrow is is a name on you know it's closer to watch list. So I don't want to get too too cute with uranium. Maybe maybe we'll be leaving money on the table be, because of that. Um, but that's kind of where I stand on the on the metal at, at the moment. Well, you took most of the time away on that, but we've got to cover a few other items. The only thing I would say is, is I think we disagree a little bit on the finer details here and probably uh, could have a longer conversation about some of the individual equities for another time. Sure. But I do agree with you. If uranium was at $60 and it stayed there for three years, your point's valid. Anything less than that, no, it doesn't work. And that just comes down to 
having some conservative factors on what mines will start and what mines get developed at that price, how long it takes to develop and all that stuff. You have a good view there and uh, congratulations on some of your wins there. And we've done pretty well. Of course, it never meets expectations. We're always trying for better, but another leg up here at some point, but it could be some time of pain before that starts. I should have sure. noted, I think it was a sign that the market was was maybe getting a little ahead of itself, at least on the equity side of things. When you saw groups like, uh, you know, Denison and uh, UEC, Boss, I know there are, there are a couple others that I'm blanking on, but, but go out into the into the market and buy physical uranium. I, I'm not saying that that was a, a foolish decision from the company's perspective. Um, it could have actually been a very smart decision from, from that company's management. But it, what it was saying clearly to me is at that point in time, they thought that physical uranium was a better investment than their own shares. And I don't think a lot of folks uh, you know, read it that way. That's a less charitable interpretation, but I, I think in hindsight, that's, that's, that's what was happening at that time. And I have mixed uh, views on it, both some positive depending on the company, and then of course negative depending on what company we're talking about. But um, you'll see also that some companies did not do that and will not do that at all going forward. There's certainly a difference in policy there, and I think you pointed it out, and it's right to point that out, that the sum it, it makes some sense for, and then others it just doesn't at all, right. and it was nothing more than a show. In some case, there was just some following the coattails of others. MPVs, certainly some of these got out of hand. I'm not saying the market doesn't start looking forward in a heavy way. That will certainly happen, but at current prices, the MPVs are, are negative. It's always interesting to point that out. It just gives me a chuckle. And I'm terribly, terribly bullish on uranium, but I also have to have a humble view. Well, let's leave it there on that. I want to move on to the next one. I want mm -hmm. to get your quick view. Vanadium's covered. We're done. Let's move on to uh, to 10 here for a moment. I'd like to get your quick view on 10. 10, the, the flavor of the month. I'm seeing a, a lot of chatter out there and, and for good reason. Um, you know, we, we, we don't have any 10 exposure with, within, within the MJG portfolio. Uh, that's that's not by design. Uh, uh, that's that's more just I hadn't I didn't come across an opportunity at the right time that made sense relative to the rest of the opportunities that were were on our plate, both within the existing portfolio and in terms of new positions that that could be added. Um, you know, obviously we, we've seen tin prices hit all time highs here just in, in, you know, very recently in the past few weeks. Metal has been been absolutely on fire. You know, it's its primary application is is as soldering for for electronics and semiconductors. So some pretty you know sexy applications you you could say. And as far as metals go, um, you know another important point here that's that's not lost on people following the space is exploration and development expenditures. You know, focused on tin have been depressed for decades now. It was thought of as by many folks as a metal that was going out of out of favor and, and not worth exploring for. So you're left in the situation where you know the majority of supply is coming from you know relatively unsavory uh, jurisdictions, and uh, there aren't too many uh, large scale <clears throat> development projects that are out there ready to be built or even you know within within reasonable proximity to be to be ready to be built. You know, one interesting piece of, of data that a lot of folks po uh, point to um, is the Rio Tinto study that they, they commissioned alongside MIT. And uh, MIT determined uh, that tin actually, uh, as a metal, was uh, most positively impacted by new technology out of, out of any metal. And uh, I think lithium, uh, cobalt, silver, and nickel, I believe, rounded rounded out the uh, the top five there. Um, but you know that's 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 been some some ammo kind of in the the back pocket of uh, of, of tin bulls. Um, you know there, there's there's very few vehicles for tin exposure. Um, you know there's the producers uh, metal metals X, which they're, with their operation down in Tasmania. Uh, Alphamin is is definitely a name that I'm I'm following. It's it's interesting. It's it's cheap. I think at the moment it's at a thirty percent free cash flow yield uh, after after recent moves in recent days it might be a little bit lower than that but it's it's still uh, it's cheap for the amount of cash that they're that they're generating uh, that said there's a lot of chatter about it and this might be a strength for me as an investor this might be a flaw for me as an investor it's, it's probably a mix a mix of both but when I see a lot of chatter and an excitement about about a given name or a given sector or a given metal, for me that's a turn out turn off if I'm not already positioned in that in that specific story. So Alphamin kind of falls into that category. I'll also just say, you know, you have to have a pretty extreme stomach for for geopolitical risk with that name. It's in the DRC. 
And within the DRC, it's in the scary part of the DRC, kind of the eastern eastern part of the country there, uh, you know, right near Rwanda, right near Burundi, you know, l- less desirable than, than even, you know, where Kamoa Kukula is operating um, and you know, other, other regions with, within what is a, a massive country. Another name out there, Strongbow. Uh, well, it's it's now called uh, Cornish Metals, I believe. Uh, we, we used to be Strongbow shareholders in 2016, 2017 timeframe. Um, their South Crofty project in the, the UK. That's an interesting one. I've seen some smart people uh, talking about. You know, that that said, we we exited the position because um, the company missed on on a couple on a couple promised milestones and uh, seemed to be spinning their wheels there there at the moment. So, you know, as I mentioned, the biggest concern for me at the moment when it comes to tin is the buzz and excitement we're we're seeing across the space. Um, right. You know. I'm I'm generally allergic to these situations. You know, maybe in the next big market pullback, where where, where everything gets sold off in, uh, in in mass, that could be an opportunity to to step in and, and make sure we we have some tin exposure. But we we don't at the moment. Okay, bullish or bearish? Comet only. First, start with uh, oil. Bullish or bearish here? You want it quick. Uh, we don't do oil and gas uh, within um, within the MJG fund. That, that's a whole discussion in itself. We have no hydrocarbon exposure, uh, have never had any hydrocarbon exposure. It's not for moralistic reasons. It's, it's just due to the timeframes that we're investing over. Um, you know, there, it's, it's highly correlated with metals anyway. It's a different industry, different science, different people. So I'm, I'm sticking to my knitting and, and, and staying within, within the metal space. So no, no oil, gas or coal exposure, no strong opinions there. How about coal here? Coal, I would in, would include in the hydrocarbon basket, so we don't have coal exposure either. Um, look, I, there's obviously it's, there's been a strong run amongst the equities after being insanely out of favor <laughs> late late last year, and it's been a, a long multi-year uh, period for any of these these coal-focused uh, companies. All of these all of these you know uh, older sources of energy are, are going to continue to have relevance globally until the day I, I die as far as I'm concerned you know maybe I'll, I'll stand to be corrected here I'm sure there's individual security opportunities amongst amongst the coal space but that's that's not a sandbox that that we dabble in any comments on carbon credits I know that's hydrocarbon related to some degree but carbon credits any comments on the price of carbon credits going forward? Look, I, I think it's an interesting space. Um, I mean, you have folks like Marin Katusa out there, you know, pounding the table on a, on a daily basis to to take a look. There aren't too many vehicles to play it. We do actually own a company called Star Royalties, which I think by market cap is the smallest of 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 the uh, gold silver focused uh, royalty co's. A certain niche of their business, it's about twenty percent, is kind of their their stated intent. Um, is focused on these carbon credit opportunities, and I'm hoping that they they, they push the pedal to the uh, to the metal there and and spin that out sooner rather than later. There's another carbon credit vehicle that's out there. Um, I'm not a, not a fan of the of the people running it, um, you know. But to their credit, they've been able to uh, assemble a, a roster of high profile backers. But I'd like to see Star spin out their their carbon credits business and, and go head to head with this group because I, I think I think there's there's a lot of blue sky. And it's it's still early. Okay. Uh, any comments on the royalty companies here? Royalty companies generally, well, it, it is a business model that you know is, is near and dear to my heart. As I as I mentioned, I'm allergic to dilution, and this is another one of those those business models that seem to be you know handcrafted to to avoid dilution as as much as possible. Um, and I believe we're at about 20% of our weighted portfolio focused on on royalty co's at the moment. Um, you know, I guess the the, the one. One point I'll leave you with is I'm a lot more excited about the royalty companies that are focused outside of, of gold and silver. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, the royalty business model has transformed the the precious metal space over the past two decades. You know, we have quite a healthy bit of exposure to various precious metal focused uh, royalty companies. Um, Golden Valley, I consider a prospect generator, but because of their large equity position in Abitibi Royalties, you could just as easily consider that a, that a royalty name. Alta Strategies is another one of these royalty generators in the in the portfolio. Um, all that said, you know I, I'm excited about the the names that are focused on uh, on metals outside of PMs, and you know it's a pretty small group of of names. You know um, Anglo Pacific and Altius Altius Minerals, which is a fund uh, holding Altius is uh, come to mind as kind of heavyweights along with Labrador Iron Ore. Um, but I think there's there's a lot of blue sky there. I mean we we've seen. The precious metal royalty space go from a sub one billion dollar industry to a sixty odd billion dollar industry today in, in two decades. If you 
look at the cumulative market cap of the non-precious metal focused uh, royalty names, you know, we're, we're in the four or five billion dollar range. So that doesn't seem to make sense to me. I mean, gold as a whole is is only 15 to 20 percent of, uh, of you know total value of metal that's pulled out of the ground on a, on a given year. But, you know, this this comparison between the royalty companies is, is, is much more extreme. We're talking an order of magnitude difference. Um, you know, a lot of folks will say there, there's good reason for this. I think you can make a compelling argument that the cash flow multiples that these uh, that these non-precious metal royalty companies uh, should receive, you know, it should be at, at par with precious with precious metals. I mean, usually these 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 base metal and energy metal operations are, are longer life than, than your average gold mine. Uh, or you know, talking 20, 30, 40 years versus 10, 15, or, or 20. And there's also fewer of them out there. I mean, uh, gold is a, is a much more fragmented industry of a lot more mines producing on a smaller basis. So yes, it's harder for a royalty company to break in if you're focusing on a metal like, like nickel or a metal like copper or a metal like uranium. But if you're able to do so, if you're the first mover, I think there's a lot of, lot of value there. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave your listeners with that. I mean, we, you know, we do have uh, and Nova Royalty is a large holding of ours, and it's uh, a company that I, I wrote about as the featured investment in our previous investor letter, and I included an update on it in, its, in the most recent investor letter. Um, you know, we own a name like EMX Royalty, which has some precious metal royalty exposure, but, you know, has, has a good amount focused on copper and zinc and lead and nickel and some, some of these other, other metals. And then, of course, the, the aforementioned Altius uh, Minerals is a, is a holding of ours, and I, I can't speak, uh, you know, more highly about, about uh, Brian and, and the group there. That's kind of more of a buy and, and forget name, which is uh, distinct from a lot of the other names in the MJG portfolio where, you know, I'm tracking the news flow on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, but, you know, Altius uh, deserves a home in, in basically every investor's retirement accounts for as far as I'm concerned. That, that to be fair, is not a recommendation to your listeners, but uh, I can say that in my retirement accounts, I, I own Altius in addition to within MJG. Good points, Matt. Last thing, how can folks reach out to you that are interested in MJG or just reaching out to contact you? Best way for that. And then also, uh, if you want to share any details, requirements to come onto the fund. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned the website. There's a contact form there. That's you know www.mjgcapital.com. Um, and you can also follow me on uh, Twitter. Uh, the, the Twitter handle is Geiger Counting. Little little play on uh, on the Geiger counter there, so that's Geiger counting is is the handle, and uh, you know I'll share I'll share interviews and some some thoughts on the market as, as well as the fund's uh, investor letters there. Yeah, the fund's uh, structure is pretty simple. You have to have trust in me as an investor, you know, in order to to lock in. I'll, I'll admit that's a draconian lockup, but it's it's it set us up with the structure to succeed in this in this space as far as I'm concerned. And uh, you have to be an accredited investor. So those are those are really the only two requirements. Happy to talk that over with any of your your listeners if there's interest. Matt, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. We'll have to do it again. And you stay well out there. You too, Andrew. This has been fun. Thanks for having me on.